chapter 1 tonight, Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> as we continue, we started last week in our study of chapter 1 here, and we worked down through verse 8, I'm going to start reading in verse number 9 in a moment, but I wanted to just reiterate there in verse 8, a very well-known verse, it's kind of the theme verse of Acts, but ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Uh, there's a huge trade show every year in Las Vegas called the Consumer Electronics uh, tra uh, Show, and it uh, has hundreds of vendors, thousands uh, and thousands of visitors come through there. All the latest gadgets and the te latest tech is on display. Well, in in uh, 2018, there were over 180,000 people there, and the, something strange happened. In the middle of this consumer electronics show, uh, the power went out. And without the power, uh, none of these fancy gadgets would work. You know, and I suppose some of them might have had some battery life, but uh, they needed the power to be able to uh, show what they were doing there. And uh, I just think that is kind of ironic that at an electronic show, the power goes out. And of course, all the, the fanciest gadgets in the world won't do anything if it has no power. Well, the Christian life's the same way. We got to have power to be able to do what we do. We might look good. We might present a nice package, but we got nothing if we don't have power. That does not come from us. Power that comes from an outside source. And so Jesus said in verse 4, don't do anything until the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Verse 8, he tells us that's how you're going to receive power. Now, before or without this power, we ought not to try to do it in our own strength because really uh, it, we're unable to do that anyway. <clears throat> and so now we come to verse number 9. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. While they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. They then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey. And we might read a few more verses uh, in a little bit here, but uh, what a what a scene this would have been the ascension uh, the him after he made his last challenge there you're going to be witnesses to me you're going to this is the job I have for you, and then he starts to float upward <laughs> be quite a sight wouldn't it uh, it's no surprise that they were gazing there. His resurrection was an epic event, but that was done in private. Nobody saw that. Uh, in fact, uh, the resurrection, of course, it meant so many things, the defeat of death, uh, overcoming uh, the consequences of sin. But as amazing as that was, and not taking away from that at all, but they had seen people raised from the dead before. Uh, there, uh, remember, they were there when Lazarus was in the tomb and they rolled away the stone of Lazarus' tomb and they and Jesus called him by name and he comes walking out all wrapped up and they had to unwrap him and there's Lazarus and, and then he uh, fellowshiped with them after that. Of course, a resurrection is not a regular thing, but it had been seen a couple of times uh, with those that were around Jesus. But here, 
uh, a human body defies the law of gravity and it goes upward into the sky and they're just doing exactly what we would do, standing there looking, mouths open, probably going, wow, never seen anything like that before. Might have seen somebody fall down, but we've never seen anybody go up like he did. In fact, the ascension of Christ is so important that it's mentioned over 20 times in the New Testament. The significance should not be overlooked. The fact is that we now have an advocate with the Father since Jesus has ascended to heaven. 1 John 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. We have a mediator in heaven. Uh, 1 Timothy 2, 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, we have a great high priest, the Bible tells us, and he's been, he's been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows, uh, what it, what we are going through here on earth. And so, uh, what a blessing that is to have an advocate, to have, another, really, the idea of an advocate is kind of like an attorney, to have someone who speaks for us, a mediator. But so here they stood, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, verse 11, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, again, can we blame them for gawking a little bit, staring up and and uh, evidently Jesus had kind of went out of their sight and they couldn't see him anymore, but that's, a, that's quite a sight. And so they're standing there and these, uh, all, all the eyes on that hillside, I'm sure, were riveted to the sky, just watching what they had just seen. What had begun in a cradle has ended in a cloud. And it's an amazing thing, this life of Jesus. God as man came down to live in their midst, and so here they are, completely overwhelmed, gaping into the sky, so much so that they did not see these two men, the Bible says, in white apparel. Presumably they're angels, and, uh, and why not? Had angels not announced Christ's birth? Uh, angels had observed his temptation. Angels had strengthened him in Gethsemane. Angels had announced his resurrection. Now angels come to basically escort him uh, into the skies. Two of them waited around long enough to ask the question, you men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? Uh, human unbelief always seems to amaze the angels. Uh, the Jesus had told them about his departure in John chapter 14, he had told them that this is going to happen. And then he had here given in verse 8 uh, and several other places as well, but he had just given them a job to do and uh, he, in, in the meantime until he would return. So why do they stand staring skyward? This same Jesus, the men said, that you just seen go up, he's going to come in like manner again. Why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The visitors uh, were gone after that. These men did not stick around, these in white apparel, but their message, I think, rings through the ages. Why stand ye here gazing? I wonder if that question could not be asked of us. How many times are we not about doing the work of God, the command of God, because we're gazing on whatever we 
we, maybe we're gazing on a career, maybe we're gazing on a child or a son, daughter, maybe even at a tragedy of some sort. You know what? If you're able to be deterred from doing the work of God because of gazing, Satan's always going to give you something to gaze at. It's always going to be something that'll distract you. He'll always give you an excuse. Why stand you here gazing? Uh, he's going to come again. Until then, there's work to be done, is what they're essentially saying to these men. The first coming was over. The second coming is now in our sight. A new chapter has begun. They and we are all a part of now doing the work of Christ in that chapter. As the glorified body of Christ went to heaven, the work remains for us to build uh, his church body. So you have the ascension, then the assembly. Now let's look at uh, verse number... Oh, let's see here. Uh, verse 12. Then they return, Then returned they into Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealotus, and Judas the brother of James. God had given the Sabbath to Israel is a day of rest, and we know we talked about the Sabbath and all that. The rabbis had turned it into a burden rather than a blessing, and I think it's interesting here that they reference a Sabbath day journey. That's about 2,000 yards, and it's just interesting that it's thrown in there because it reminds us of how a Jewish the disciples still were, and it also reminds us of how Jewish the infant church would be. I and mean, we see that later, we've actually just went through it in, in Galatians how uh, Peter stood up or Paul stood up to Peter and there was a real uh, problem they had with that. So they're very Jewish still, but the Bible lists their names here and as always, Peter's at the top of that list. The last name is interesting, Judas, the brother of James, uh, reminds us that there's another one missing. Uh, there's only 11 listed here. Uh, Judas Iscariot is missing. And uh, used to be another Judas, but that we know what happened to him. We'll talk about him in just a little bit. It's a, a blessing for us to realize, even though the name Judas is almost eradicated today. I've never met a Judas. I don't know if you ever met a Judas. I, I, what parent would call their kid Judas? I don't know. Maybe Jezebel's brother. <laughs> if somebody had a Jezebel, but uh, nobody names their kid. That's that name's been ruined. Judas, Judas ruined it. But thank God here. Uh, there was a good Judas too. There was a Judas that didn't didn't leave Christ either and stayed with him, and and uh, there, he was faithful. But this is the group of men found here in verse thirteen that would change the course of history. Now we'll look real quickly at what type of men they were. They were a persevering group. What the Bible says in verse fourteen: these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, with his brethren. They were a persevering group they continued they did not know how long they would have to wait but they were willing to wait and they waited in obedience like Jesus told them to nothing could discourage them now Jesus was alive Jesus they knew is watching them from above uh, they can't see him anymore but they know he can see them he had promised power to them he had told them to wait and so they waited they were a purposeful group the Bible says they all continued with one accord. They were one. There was a harmony of purpose with these men. There was no sign here of complaining. There's no sign of them comparing themselves to one another anymore. They're not discussing here 
who is the greatest. I, it just amazes me to, we have that picture of the Last Supper. Uh, it's not a photograph, a guy painted it, but that's what we think of when we think of the Last Supper. And uh, that, at the Last Supper, the very last night, Jesus is with them and they're arguing who's the greatest. Uh, just like, that's why people say, how do you know that the early church was Baptist? That's how they were arguing about who's the greatest all the way back then. And so uh, we can we can see some common traits there. And uh, the last supper they were doing this, but not now. Uh, Peter's no longer asking what John should do. Thomas is no longer pouring any cold water on things. And Philip is no longer asking for signs. They are purposefully waiting for God's next move. I tell you, there is a huge blessing in a church or anybody, in those two words, one accord. It's a great blessing when there's a group of people in one accord. I've used this example before, but I love the, the illustration that it gives. A, a Midwestern fair a number of years ago, many spectators had gathered for an old-fashioned horse pull. Uh, various weights are put on horse-drawn sleds, and then they see which horse can pull the most weight. And of course, using uh, Clydesdales, I believe it was here, and the grand champion pulled a sled with 4,500 pounds on it. And then the runner-up came after him, was pretty close. He uh, pulled a sled with 4,400 pounds on it. He was very close to the champion. And so some of the men got to talking and wondered what would happen if we hitched these two horses uh, to one and let both of them pull. Presumably, they would uh, pull about 8,900 pounds. That's uh, my common core math at work, 4,500 plus 4,400. I think that's right, about 8,900 pounds. But what happened was that when they were hitched together, pulled as a team, they pulled over 12,000 pounds. There's a name for that. There's a word for it. It's called synergy. That is the, uh, the idea that more can be accomplished when we work together than the total of the individual efforts of the same group. I'll say that again. So you take, you take four people who are working individually trying to get something done and you, you total all their efforts together and it'll be less than if you take those same four and let them work together uh, for the same goals. It, in mathematical terms, synergy looks like this. Two plus two equals five. That's what synergy looks like in mathematical terms. Uh, synergy in a church happens when each person uses their own skills, depending, you know, whatever God gave them, how God gave them the abilities to work, even though we all have shortcomings, even though we all have weaknesses, yet we all use our unique abilities and we all pull together towards a same and common goal. A lot can be accomplished if we're in one accord. Amen? Now, uh, did you know that there is something that you can do? You can do better than anybody else in here. I really believe that. Something that you're better at than anybody else in here. Because God's given each one of us unique abilities. And I don't know what it is for every one of you. I, many of you, I know what your gift is and, and uh, the Lord's using you in them. But I think it'd be a wise thing for you to, de to, to uh, determine that in your heart and life. What has God given you the ability and the desire to do? But there's something, God, God gives people different strengths. So the goal of our church then should be to utilize each person in the areas of their abilities. At 1 Peter 4.10, 
tells us exactly about this. It says, as every man hath received the gift, so let him minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So we're given the gift, so we all minister. And what's the Bible say? The same one to another. In other words, one accord. Amen? We should be working together uh, towards one common goal. I encourage you, even here at Bible Baptist, to find your niche and get involved and serve the Lord in uh in whatever way he would have you. We at Bible Baptist Church need to be in one accord. That can only happen as we serve one Lord and seek to please him. Herman Edwards was the coach of the Kansas City Chiefs. And I like his his, uh, rule he had for his players. He said, the players that play on my football team will play for the name on the side of their helmet, not the name on the back of their jersey." I think a lot of Christians, even in the church today, play for the name on the back of the jersey rather than the name on the side of the helmet, so to speak. And just so you know, the team name's up here. (laughs) Your personal name's in the back. Amen. We need to play uh, for the team. Too many times we play for ourselves. So they were a unified group. They were a persevering group. They were a purposeful group. They're also a praying group. The Bible says here that they continued in prayer and supplication. This was a 10-day prayer meeting. What did they pray about? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. They were in obedience to the Lord here. Uh, they prayed for about the coming of the Holy Spirit. They were probably praying to prepare their hearts uh, for that. I, I like to, to think that we, we do the same thing when we have revivals upcoming. Uh, that's why we advertise them. That's why they're in the bulletin. That's why they're in front of you, so that we can pray about them. We can pray about upcoming meetings and about how the Lord might prepare our hearts in those meetings. Not only revival meetings, but we have we really have a revival meeting every Sunday morning here and Sunday night and Wednesday night. We ought to be in prayer about those things, how God can use those uh, in our lives. So that's what they were doing. They were praying. They were also a precious group. No company of individuals in the universe more precious Lord Jesus than this one right here. He chose them all personally. Those, These all with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Included with the disciples there were godly women that loved the Lord. I don't know what women exactly. Mary Magdalene perhaps. Uh, Mary of Bethany. Martha. Uh, very possibly all those were there. Uh, Justice was there. Matthias was there. Uh, was Lazarus there? Nicodemus, possibly, Zacchaeus, Bartimaeus. We don't know who all was there. Uh, Mary, the mother of the Lord, was there. By the way, she was there, but just so we have this clear, nobody in Acts chapter 1 was worshiping Mary. Okay, Nobody was asking Mary to intercede for them. Mary was just one of them. She was just a group of these believers. So uh, no, no place in the Bible do you find that kind of heretical teaching. So his, her other sons were there. The Bible says his brethren were there. Now they knew that Jesus was who he claimed to be. What a precious company that was. Hey, what a precious company that is. It's still, the body of Christ is still here meeting in a local church. What a blessing it is uh, to come together and to worship together as God's people. We have the same opportunity uh, coming together here into this beautiful church building, singing together, praying together, worshiping together, and uh, hearing God's word together. These are uh, blessed times. There were about 120 uh, of them here gathered, and uh, Jesus had chosen 12. Now there's 10 times that amount and uh, waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, it did not take Peter long uh, to take the lead. Would you 
believe that. It didn't take Peter long to take the lead. His disgrace is forgotten. Jesus had forgiven him. I love the fact that Peter, here natural born leader like he always was, did not allow great failure to defeat him. I mean, is there anybody in the Bible that could have let his failure defeat him? It would have been Peter, but he didn't. Uh, he he has stood, took the floor here. Something was bothering him. Jesus had chosen 12 disciples. One is missing, and Peter decides that something has to be done about this missing member. Uh, it was like Peter uh, when something he decided something needed to be done, needed to be done right now. That's how Peter operated. He was a an impatient guy. I can't stand impatient people. Uh, so bothers me that I am one. But anyway, uh, it was like Peter that something had to be done. So he de- dealt with the ruin of Judas, verses 15 through 19. That's what we're going to talk about for a few minutes. So let's read those uh, verses. And I don't know if we'll get to the replacing of Judas yet. Uh, we'll talk about that as we uh, move along. It might be into next week. But let's look at what the Bible says, verse 15. And in those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about in 120. Men and brethren, this scripture must needs have been fulfilled, which the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake before concerning Judas, which was guide to them that took Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained part of this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong, he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out. And it was known unto all the dwellers of Jerusalem insomuch as that field is called in the proper tongue, uh, asaled, yeah, that word, the field of blood. That's what that word means. Peter was speaking about the ruin of Judas here. He quotes scriptures. Uh, he, he refers to scriptures that had predicted this to happen. He was numbered with us, he said. Had obtained part of this ministry. He had been their friend. He had been their treasurer. He had seen the miracles of Jesus. He had worked the long nights, served the 5,000 was on the ship when Jesus walked on the water. He was with them during all these miracles. Uh, It's an amazing thing how many messages he sat by and listened that Christ gave. How many lessons he heard Jesus talk about with them privately and publicly. Imagine the opportunity that he had here. He threw it all away for 30 lousy pieces of silver. Judas' end was not a pretty picture. But we need a clear, especially for our young people, we need to paint that picture clear of what sin does to you. And that's what sin did to uh, Judas. Sin never paints a pretty picture. Uh, We need more preachers like Peter here today. In fact, uh, he said here what happened, and and we're going to not dwell on it, but Peter doesn't mince any words, talks about his the man breaking open, his bowels coming out. Uh, This is the true work of sin. It destroys completely. Peter talks about the conduct of Judas that leads to this end. And unlike many preachers, he does not water down the nature of sin. He spoke of evil in a truthful way. He spoke of it in an easy-to-understand way. And uh, it's a sad thing today when we glamorize or gloss over wickedness in our day. We have a plenty of example of, uh, of, of wickedness, and, and many times we don't call it out as we should. Uh, Elvis Presley and Marilyn Monroe, like the suicide of, of Judas, they, uh, they, they manifested this sin in their lives as well. Yet these people are still, after decades, 
idolized and lifted up today and glorified even by many Christians. This attitude gives a distorted view of sin. Sin destroys. And let's look at it very quickly. He gives five details here about the ruin of Judas. And he, he just calls it out as it is. And I use this as a as an occasion to say that we also need to do so. Listen, if you're teaching a Sunday school class or you're teaching kids or children's church, whatever the case might be, uh, we need to be honest about what sin does and uh, what sin will do in, the, in our lives as we allow it. But look at, first of all, Judah's privilege. What increased his sin was really the spiritual privileges he enjoyed. Think about the fact of all the messages he heard. The walking with Jesus every day for three years. <clears throat> Peter said of him, he was numbered with us. He had obtained part in this ministry. He was a number of a select group of 12 people chosen by Christ. And you could say that in our spiritual world, there's probably not 12 uh, out of, this is probably the most, uh, the most privileged group of men in the whole Bible. I mean, they were Jesus' disciples. They walked with him for three years. They were his inner circle. Uh, what a tremendous privilege this was. People today boast about memberships and clubs or uh, special things that they're involved in, organizations. Imagine being a member of this group, the 12 that Jesus chose himself. That was Judas. Even even more than that, he held an office within the group. He was the treasurer. Uh, yet Judas did not profit from his membership in this group or his office from this group, except in a wicked way. He used his position to betray the Lord Jesus Christ, and as a treasurer, he used the position to pad his own pocket. John chapter 12, verse 6, calls him a thief long before he ever, uh, before he ever betrayed Christ. Judas reminds us, and this is a scary thought, but he reminds us that it's possible for a church member or a church officer to have a uh, really not uh, not be serving with the right heart, be serving to their own ends. And God help us that we are never found with the kind of heart that Judas has. It only intensifies the failure for somebody who had all that opportunity and he did not take up on it. Look also his partnership. In spite of uh, G Judas' uh, spiritual advantages, he partnered himself with people that wanted to kill Christ. Peter said in verse 16 here, Judas was guide to them that took Jesus. Remember what Andrew did? Brought his brother to Jesus. Remember that? Uh, he, Judas led people to Christ as well to arrest him instead of the right way. He perverted the purpose. We ought to bring people to Jesus, but not how Judas did. The disciples were trained to lead people to accept Christ. Uh, Judas led people to arrest Christ. The disciples were to lead people to honor Christ. And uh, Judas led people to dishonor him. Uh, the disciples were to support Christ. Jesus, with the heathen partners that he, uh, he, he partnered up with, opposed Christ. Churches, today even still, have within their midst often enemies to Christ's work. And it's a sad thing, but it's just the case uh, of churches today. First first thing we need to realize is that a church is always made up of imperfect people, isn't it? 
And there's always some within uh, that church body that are not out for the cause of Christ. They're out for the cause of the name on the back of their jersey. And that's not what we want uh, as we serve Christ. Judas uh, was such a tragic figure. Uh, I'm convinced that Christians today are doing one of the one or the other. Instead, uh, they're either uh, working towards the cause of Christ or working against the cause of Christ. It's a hard thing to remain neutral in here. And so let's make sure that we are going the right direction. So not only do you uh, have his partnership, and not only do you have his privilege, but his prize. Look at verse number 18. Now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. The reward of iniquity. He had, of course, gotten the 30 pieces of silver. If you look at the Bible story, though, and look at the timeline here, uh, this reward of iniquity here I don't believe is talking about the 30 pieces of silver because Judas never spent that 30 pieces of silver. Judas did not buy a field with that money. So it looks like there are two fields in play here. Uh, that, like, In fact, there's not going to go into detail, but if you look at the, the Greek words, there's a different word for the field that Judas bought. It's uh, translated farm uh, from a word that means farm. There's a different word for the field that the, uh, that the, the, they bought to uh, the uh, religious leaders bought. And so it uh, looks like Judas had, with his ill-gotten gains, because he was a thief, according to the uh, book of John chapter 12, and so uh, it looks like he had, he had stolen money, then he had bought a place, and he went there to commit suicide later than they buried him in the place that was purchased with the 30 pieces of silver. Uh, the Bible speaks about this, causing, calling it a reward of iniquity. There is a reward in sin. Uh, the ultimate reward in sin is found in uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. That's the ultimate reward of sin. But in the meantime, it does pay to sin in immediate gratification, but what a terrible cost is attached to it. It's rewarding to sin, maybe in, in an immediate term, but the terrible rewards that come after because sin makes many great promises. Sin makes a lot of promises of joy and satisfaction and pleasure, but it never tells the whole story. Judas might have seen the 30 pieces of silver. That's the immediate gratification. But then he had to deal with the terrible consequences of his sin. The appeal to sin is that its, a, is that its rewards are immediate. That's the appeal to sin. We like immediate gratification, don't we? If you're hungry, and you have a, a, chance, a choice between a buffet, which is, aren't buffets nice because they're immediately available? I like that about buffets. Buffets are biblical. Paul tells us to buffet the flesh. And so uh, we, we have, uh, if you go to a buffet, that's, that's immediately available versus a sit-down restaurant where you have to order your food and do that horrible waiting while you're hungry and you're waiting, watching other people eat. And people I have found are not too friendly to you picking a fry off their plate if you don't know them and they're sitting beside you. So, uh, you know, we like immediate gratification, don't we? That's what sin offers. Sin offers immediate gratification. So sin, play now, pay later. See, righteousness, we work now, pay later. We don't like that. The flesh doesn't like to work now, pay later. We like to play now, pay later. Why do you think credit cards are so effective? Uh, credit cards are one of the biggest rip-offs in the world. 
we happily take them on and people get caught up in that. And so, because we like that idea of immediate gratification. A.C. Hervey said this, let us reckon, talking about Judas, his gains and losses. He had gained 30 pieces of silver, but he lost his apostleship, the highest office on earth, his throne, the highest place of man in heaven under Jesus Christ, his peace of mind, his self-respect, his power of enjoying life, the esteem of all good men, any place among men save that of shame and disgrace. He lost everything. He saw that 30 pieces of silver. What a tragedy sin is. The reward of sin is very deceiving. The immediate rewards, 30 pieces of silver, betray the consequences that we have to deal with long term. And it's still so true today. Uh, we, we look at sin. We want to enjoy the rewards, of the immediate gratification of it. But we have to consider the consequences. And then finally, his, or not finally, but the next one, his passing. Peter adds some details here about the death of Judas. We don't learn this uh, from the Gospels. In Matthew, uh, it just says he went out and hanged himself. Well, Peter describes a little bit more about the gory details of what happened. Judas, we don't know whether he was an overweight man or whether he was using a weak branch or whether the rope broke, but evidently Judas, in hanging himself, something broke, and he went. he fell all the way down and his body uh, burst open, the Bible says. Uh, his bowels gushed out. Uh, he bungled his own hanging. And so this caused uh, a, a vicious and, and gruesome scene to be described here in the New Testament. Uh, what an end. What an end to a man that could have been so different if you'd have made the right choices. Let's not allow the reward of iniquity to arouse any kind of desire in our eyes to go down that path. Then look at his publicity. Judas posed as a loyal disciple of Jesus Christ for about three years. But the phoniness of what he did, everybody now knows. That is a sad thing for the rest of time. Wouldn't you hate for your betrayal to be so evil that for the rest of time, nobody would name their child what you were named? Think about that. How many people carry your name? I don't Presumably, you're not the only one named what's your name. I mean, Mike, that's a pretty common name. There's two of them here. Amen. So, uh, there, that's, but think about the shame that was associated with Judas. Look what Peter said. It was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem. Listen, friend, this is the tragedy of, of when one of God's men, fought. Judas was a disciple. Don't you think this hurt the cause of Christ? Everybody in Jerusalem knew one of Jesus' own disciples was a phony a fraud. It was front page. They knew about his death. They knew all the stomach-turning details. Jesus' deed of betraying Christ did not only become well-known, though, to the residents of Jerusalem. It's in our Bible for all of time. Everybody knows what the very word Judas comes. His, his word has become an adjective, even. It's a Judas uh, type of action. It's become a synonym for betrayal. I even read this week, I was unaware of this until I was studying for this, that there is such a thing as a Judas goat. Have you ever heard of the Judas goat? Look that up and, and read about it on, online. It's quite interesting. Uh, in, now I know that the U.S., we don't eat many goats. We have good things here like beef and, 
and chicken, but in a lot of places they eat a lot of goats, and they have a what they call a Judas goat, and they he's the one because goats are and sheep they also have Judas sheep. They they uh, they goats and sheep follow a leader, and so they have a trained one that that leads all of them basically to slaughter. They let him live because he's going to come back and lead others to slaughter, and that's what they call the Judas goat. Uh, that term is a reference to who else but Judas Iscariot because he betrayed Christ. How would you like your name to be an eternal? It's like the, uh, it, it, it's, it's a horrible thing to think about. Judas hid his sin, sin for a time. Even the 11 other disciples were fooled. Remember in the upper room? One of you is going to betray me. Nobody <laughs> was waiting for that to happen with old Judas goat over here, but it didn't, they didn't say that. They didn't have any idea. In fact, they suspected themselves before they suspected Judas. He hid it well. Men are forever thinking they can conceal their sin. But sooner or later, it'll be uncovered. Some men go to a great effort to try and control what other people think of them. They create alternate, alternate, alternative realities even, trying to, uh, trying to basically create an image for others. You know, some even hire publicity agents. Maybe that's what I need, Brother Sam. We could probably both need use a publicity agent make us look better. But these efforts are vain. The Bible says in Proverbs 10, 7, the memory of the just is blessed. The memory of the wicked shall rot. It'll come out. It'll uh, be known. Time eventually reveals the wickedness of man. And so this was Judah's sad end. And Peter is dealing with that. Now, we're not really going to get into it because... Uh, I wouldn't have much to say about this anyway, about this issue of replacing Judas, uh, verses 21 through 22. Uh, here, one of these men which have accompanied with us, all that time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the same that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So, uh, obviously, to be an apostle, you need to be a witness there. And so, uh, there's arguments against what Peter did here. There's some arguments for it. You can uh, land where you want. I don't really have a too strong of a... Uh, I'll just give you these for uh, re really quickly. There's a lack of precept. No command anywhere that Jesus talked about replacing Judas. Uh, Peter took the command out of context, I think, from the Old Testament. Secondly, there's a lack of precedence. Uh, the 12 had been chosen by Christ. Uh, he was going to choose another one, I believe, in the Apostle Paul. And so I don't think that... Uh, that this was really Peter's job here. Uh, by the way, the replacement should have been chosen uh, either by Christ or through the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit hadn't arrived yet, so neither one was involved there. And then the lack of per uh, perpetuation. The man they chose as the substitute is never heard from again, which I don't know. Maybe he did great things for God. We don't know, but he's never heard from again in Scripture. I believe God had already chosen Paul, to, or known at that time as Saul, to fill out these ranks. Uh, we know Paul was an apostle chosen by Christ. Several places in Scripture tells us that. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1 being one of them. And uh, so at any rate, though, Peter and the others thought it was important, and so they did it. They chose somebody to be uh, ranked among them. So the number 12... Uh, was complete. Nothing was left now except to impact the world with the gospel of Christ. But they could not do it yet. They were powerless to witness. They could gather together in fellowship. They could pray. They could act in unity. 
they could talk to each other about Jesus. But they couldn't go out and witness yet. They didn't have the power to do so. It's instructive, isn't it? They needed God's, the, the Holy Spirit, to have that power to do what? To be witnesses unto me. So they were powerless to impact the world for Christ. Can I say tonight, we are still powerless to impact the world for Christ without the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. So let us not try to do it without him. They needed the Holy Spirit, and for them, him they had to wait, and so that is what they'll do. Next week, uh, we'll get into the day of Pentecost and uh, in chapter 2 there. But let's uh, use, man, let's